cold as a home of Charlie Burnett by his wife, who said he had swallowed sleeping pills in an attempt to end his life. She had earlier reported that he tried to shoot himself. He had come to Hollywood to try for a reconciliation, and it failed. Tomorrow, Barney Delavan, president of Paramount, will announce that why Frank Freeman, Paramount executive, will permanently head Paramount production, effective July 15th. The government claims Rita Hayworth and Orson Welles owe a quarter of a million dollars in back taxes. The debt was incurred when Rita was married to Welles. He claimed loss on his plot play Around the World, which Uncle Sam does not agree is deductible. Through her attorneys, however, Rita will present her own case in Washington, August 7th. You're listening to part three of the series on Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper for Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. During the 1930s, Luella Parsons didn't just report the news in Hollywood. She made it. She finagled deals between studio heads, producers, writers, men in the publicity department, as well as with Will Hayes and Joseph Breen in the production code office. She managed a staff of legmen, assistant editors, and a large nationwide network of informants. When the major studios took steps to control Luella's access to news, she worked around the roadblocks and established ties with the most powerful talent agency in the film colony. By 1937, Luella had a daily audience of 17 million readers. She made $850 a week as Hearst film editor, and she made $2,500 a week hosting a radio show. She made as much money as an A-list star. Luella had the kind of power to get a studio boss or a producer out of bed in the middle of the night. If Luella rang a studio to speak to a star, production would halt in the middle of a scene where cast and crew waited until the star got on the phone to speak to Luella. After she had a two-room addition built for a home office, stars paid a call on her. She didn't even need to chase them all over town. If she used her position inside the Hearst Syndicate to reward her friends and punish her enemies, my response is who didn't? Like Walter Winchell was a paragon of ethics, or Jimmy Fiddler? Luella was no more power mad than any of the men covering the motion picture industry or those on the production end. Nepotism was as unique to Hollywood as the California sunshine. It warms the cockles of my sass mouth heart to think how many men in her field were sore about the fact that a middle-aged woman called the shots and got so many exclusive scoops which they would have sold their dear old grannies for. By the end of the 1930s, Luella's reign at the top had been shaken by a combination of smear attacks in the press and having lost the exclusive on some of the hottest news news stories in Hollywood. When we last left Luella Parsons, she was installed in Colton, a tiny town in the California desert, convinced that she was going to die of tuberculosis, just like her father had when he was only 31 years old. When she realized after a few months that she would survive TB, Luella expected to die of boredom. Her boss, the chief, William Randolph Hearst, ignored her when she said she was ready to get back to work after a few months. 
she recuperated in Palm Springs for a full year. I won't credit Hearst with too much of a dose of benevolence just because he took her off the job and kept her on salary. He was shrewd. Luella received 800 letters each week from her readers while she was film editor for his New York American. Reports of her work ethic, which left her sometimes with as little as two to four hours of sleep at night, would have been damning evidence against him had Hearst allowed Luella to die of tuberculosis. Given the all clear, when she was ready to return to her desk in the American, Hearst had a surprise in store. He told Luella not to go to New York, not if she wanted to live. He told her to prepare for a move to Hollywood. Finally, the Hollywood columnist was moving to the motherland. She took over the film section of the Los Angeles Examiner with a raise. Luella now made $350 a week in 1926. It seems hard to believe, but Luella's Flickerings in Filmland for the Examiner was the only daily column in Los Angeles covering the film industry. Everyone but everyone read it. Her column expanded with lengthy news and reports so that in short time, the paper took over some of the column inches from the theater section. By the fall of 1926, Luella's daily column drew six million readers nationally. Once she was established in the Hollywood scene, she began to feel wistful about the women's organizations she belonged to in New York, the Woman Pays Club, and the Society for Newspaper Women. In 1928, Luella decided to start one for women who covered Hollywood film and the stars for newspapers and magazines. She worked out a deal with Bob Cobb, owner of the Brown Derby. The ladies met for lunch on Wednesday for a set price of $1.25 each. Dorothy Manners, who worked for Luella from the mid-1930s, was one of the founding members, along with Catherine Albert and Gladys Hall. Dorothy recalled, we came to eat and to dish, and it was a lot of fun. Luella had several so-called legmen over the years, the reporters she had on staff who tracked down stories and checked sources for her column. None was better than Je Jeffrey Hoffman. In an interview, Hoffman admitted that he began his work relationship with Luella determined to hate her. The subtext here is that he probably felt he was the real reporter, and she was just this lady who peddled gossip. But Hoffman recalled that he couldn't hate her for long. It was impossible. She was the most generous person he had known. She worked hard, she cared about the people she worked with, and she did everything she could to make things fair and easier for them. Luella went to bat for him over salary and benefits. She fought to get Hoffman $90 a week, which was a lot, he said, for someone who wasn't an editor at the time. And then, since she didn't think that was enough, she gave Hoffman the $30 a week she got a check from Hearst for office incidentals. Luella arranged it, so Hoffman pulled in $120 a week. In addition, she argued to get him three weeks of leave each year when the paper limited staff to only two weeks. Luella negotiated with management for Hoffman, saying that you needed at least a week until you even felt like you were on holiday. During her first years in Hollywood, Luella established relationships with the publicity departments of the major studios 
MGM, Paramount, Warner Brothers, RKO, and Fox, plus the smaller independent studios Columbia, Universal, and United Artists. Publicists developed what they called the trade technique. They would slip Luella's news in exchange for favorable coverage in her column. The bits they shared with her were exclusives, not the -the run-of-the-mill press releases and biographies that publicity departments churned out for mass distribution. Change was on the horizon in Hollywood, and Luella was there to greet it. When Warners ushered in the sound revolution, Luella, however, made the wrong call. In her column, she predicted that talkies were a fad. She wrote, I have no fear that scraping, screeching, rasping sound film will ever disturb our peaceful motion picture theaters. The industry is too wise to spend fortunes for machines, new equipment, and sound stages to project noise that the customers do not want to hear. The public has no intention of being so annoyed. Luella wasn't alone in her view. Irving Thalberg and Joe Skank also regarded the introduction of sound as a passing fad. Inadvertently, the arrival of the talkies resulted in boosting Luella Parsons' career. Sound brought chaos into the studio system, with fear over the cost entailed in equipping studios and theaters with new technology. Moguls, investors, and producers also worried about the way the transition to sound would slow production. Then there was the expense and time needed for a series of tests to decide who had a voice and who didn't. As it turned out, most of the stars did, if not all of them. Stars who squeaked high or barreled too low hired voice coaches and took elocution lessons to modulate their voices. In the studios, publicists worried that someone would leak the results of a screen test that went poorly to Luella, who would then run an item in her column. Knowing that the examiner had its copy filed two days in advance, publicists decided to give Luella a 48-hour exclusive before they gave news to another reporter. Their new policy assured Luella would have the first scoop. Luella kept exclusive access over studio press releases for more than a decade. Each time the studios thought they had developed a way to control Luella's access, she found a new loophole. At one point, the publicity departments issued a policy that news releases would go out to all reporters at the same time. As a workaround, Jeffrey Hoffman reached out to Frank Joyce, who was one half of the most powerful talent agency in Hollywood from 1930, the Joyce Selznick outfit. Myron Selznick, which was Joyce's partner. They represented Carol Lombard, Joel McRae, Marlena Dietrich, and many other top stars. Joyce found it beneficial to publicize news of their deals through Luella's column. Myron Selznick fed Luella news often before the stars themselves learned about a deal. Luella knew who signed where for how much and the insider details of contract negotiations. The studio publicity departments conducted damage control whenever Luella found a story they tried to bury. Luella printed a story that blew up about Constance Bennett's deal with Warner Brothers. 
the Joyce Selznick Agency had negotiated with Warner Brothers for Connie Bennett to do two pictures in 10 weeks for a total of $300,000. Hence, the astronomical weekly sum of Connie's deal for $30,000 a week that Luella reported. She had a knack for shaking out the gold nuggets from dry business deals details. Jack Warner blew his top when the story leaked, and two agents in Pathé, Connie's former studio, were sacked once the story was printed in Luella's column. The studio publicity men scrambled to go back to the old arrangement, whereby Luella had the 48-hour exclusive. What they decided to give her was of little concern to her once the 1930s were underway. Luella and her staff built an impressive information superhighway to Hollywood from as far away as New York and even overseas. Luella considered the reinstatement of her 48-hour exclusive to be one of the greatest victories of her career. In her memoir, she noted, As long as I can tear out a telephone by the roots, making myself heard, that rule will stay in effect. As the boys say, Parsons is on the warpath again. By 1932, Luella's schedule had been so busy that she built in a two-room extension to serve as a home office, so she didn't need to delay her work by commuting to the examiner office. The phones rang, the teletype churned, and the editorial assistants and legmen were there filing items and checking sources before Luella had finished her morning coffee. Luella recalled that she never had a truly social experience at a party. Every social event was a means to gather items for her column. One Hearst reporter noted that she was the best news hound Hollywood had ever seen. He said at parties, Luella wandered around as though she were in a daze, this vague kind of air about her. Everyone would think that she didn't hear what was being said, yet the next day in her column, she printed every word that had been said. Luella's network included actors on contract, producers, crew members, and other studio employees, but also extended to manicurists, beauticians, medical and dental receptionists who might tell her who was having work done, or who was pregnant or having an abortion. Bellboys and chambermaids might ring with news about an affair or a messy, drunken bender. Shop girls might have a tidbit on who went on a shopping spree. Luella had tipsters all over the place. If they were under contract, they would be repaid through a notice in her column. Luella's network of spies was well known. Stars took drastic measures to avoid winding up in her column. When Gloria Swanson was pregnant, she decamped to Europe to avoid Luella, and Swanson used an elaborate code for telegrams to her press agent and business manager to evade any nosy Parkers in Western Union who might forward the news to the Queen of Gossip. Oftentimes, Luella printed a story before the people involved knew about it. During one of the many weekends spent in San Simeon, Luella congratulated fellow guest Joel McRae on scoring the headline in her column. Hearst had selected him to star in one of his cosmopolitan pictures that he distributed through MGM. McRae had no idea he, he had even been considered for the part. 
Nothing gave Luella a greater thrill than being first to break a story. In the 1920s, the tone in Luella's column had been full of praise for all things related to Hollywood. She celebrated the stars, producers, moguls, and their films in her column. But as she gradually became the most influential voice in film in the press from the early 1930s, she developed a somewhat more critical approach. Luella carried on many feuds in her column. Stars who had an acrimonious relationship with the press were at the top of her vendetta list, which included long-running grudge matches with Greta Garbo and Katherine Hepburn. Legend has it that Garbo chatted amiably with Luella at a dinner party one night, but as soon as she found out who Luella was, she left the table, grabbed her hat, and made a hasty exit. Luella printed a column where she insulted Katherine Hepburn, saying the star was no beauty by any definition. United with Hearst that Anne Harding needed to be shown a lesson for her refusal to grant interviews, they paid Anne the ultimate censure. Her name was stricken from appearing in any Hearst paper. As Oscar Wilde said, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. One night at a dinner party at Ernest Lubitsch's house, Luella thought Jeanette McDonald was incredibly rude for not listening to another singer perform after dinner. Like a smack on the wrist, Luella printed an item in her column telling Jeanette McDonald to guard her weight as closely as she did her singing voice, or she'd soon be out of pictures. When Mae West arrived in Hollywood in 1932 to save Paramount's studio, Luella chastised the Broadway star for being old, fat, and a purveyor of filth. Luella changed her tune when Mae West raked it in at the box office, which kept the lights on in Paramount. Luella's feuds with men put her in a, be a better light. For example, Luella and her secretary ignored Howard Hughes' attempt to keep the press from a screening of Hell's Angels. Brazenly, they snuck into a private screening and refused to leave when Hughes discovered them. Sometimes Hearst assigned Luella to cover stories outside the film industry, as he did in 1928 when he asked her to cover the Democratic National Convention from the woman's angle and the heavyweight prize fight between Jack Dempsey and Jean Tunney. Luella's cousin Maddie Ed Maggie Edinger took her to the station in Pasadena. Maggie worked for publicity, first for W.D. Griffith, and then in one of the studios. Before she boarded the train, Maggie introduced her to a Dr. Harry Watson Martin and noted that they were making the same trip and should hang out together. Luella was on her way to meet Peter Brady, the married man she had been seeing since 1921, but she noticed the tall man with an open, friendly face who took her hand. He had an Irish face, and Luella fancied Irish men. On the train, Luella received a sarcastic telegram from Brady saying she had taken too long to leave and now he wouldn't be able to meet her in Chicago. He said she should instead meet him in New York City. By the time they reached Chicago, the doctor had convinced Luella to teach her impatient lover a lesson and keep him waiting a few days more. 
Harry invited her to stay over with him in Chicago for a few days. Luella was enchanted and let Harry make a big romantic gesture. Harry and Luella started their love affair in earnest by name-dropping. Perhaps she couldn't resist a man who showed her a telegram he sent to Jack Dempsey, which said he had just met the woman he was going to marry. You know her, he cabled. Her name is Luella Parsons. Harry also dropped the Pinkerton name when he switched Luella's train tickets without a problem. She was not to be outdone with the name game. Would he like to meet Al Capone, she asked. Luella knew Capone from covering the prize fights. With Harry watching, Luella picked up the phone and rang the hotel where Al Capone lived as though she were making an appointment in the beauty parlor. The stories about Luella's beloved Docky, as she called Harry Martin, are not flattering. Hollywood legend passes him off as a urologist who earned a living by giving abortions and treating sexually transmitted diseases. He was reportedly on the payroll of the most notorious madam in Hollywood. But Docky had a successful private practice from the 1920s on. Ori Kelly and at least three other people are credited with having witnessed Dockey's heavy drinking in action at a dinner party. Dockey, in his cups, slid under the dinner table and passed out. When someone pointed out the drunken physician wrapped around the chair legs, Luella was said to have replied, Oh, leave Dockey alone. He has surgery tomorrow. Another variation on Docky's drunken escapades involves the time he passed out at a party with his fly open. When his member fell out, which was said to resemble a baby's arm holding an apple, Wilson Meisner, celebrated Hollywood wit, looked down and quipped, there's Luella's column. Partygoers often rolled their eyes when Docky and Luella would start making out like a couple of teenagers after a few drinks, but Luella was in love with the man. They married on the 5th of January, 1930. Her daughter, Harriet, was in attendance. Harriet was then a staff writer for Photoplay magazine. The newlyweds honeymooned in San Simeon. By all accounts, Docky was devoted to Luella. Unlike many husbands in Hollywood, he was not desexed or put out by his wife's success. He helped Luella by reading over contracts and red tape. Soon after they married, she used her contacts to expand her groom's professional profile. Luella used her connections to have him paid as a technician on film sets as an advisor. In 1931, strings were pulled by Luella through Louis B. Mayer to put Docky on the California State Boxing Commission. Later, he became a physician-in-residence for 20th Century Fox. A studio doctor was a pretty cushy gig. In 1929, most people were tearing their hair out over their losses on Wall Street. Hedda Hopper, for example, lost her shirt. So did Anita Luce, thanks to her deadbeat husband's bad investments. Luella was neck deep in work and loving it. She spent money like a drunken sailor on leave, yet there was always more money coming in. 
Hearst at one point felt threatened by the competition from the rise of movie magazines, and he gave Luella an assignment that would have been taxing for most people, if not completely overwhelming. He wrote to the editors of every paper he owned, telling them that their film page was sloppy and that Luella was on her way to show them what should be done. Luella embarked on a tour of 25 cities. She was on the road for four solid months. She had quite a task in front of her. She had to study each paper's layout, design, and coverage, and then show them how it should be and how to remedy it. In order to achieve what Hearst had in mind for the film pages to transform into something like the LA Examiners, she had to lecture on design principles, aesthetics, even lessons about font type. Luella returned to Hollywood with a hero's reception waiting for her, as though she had returned from the front line. A marching band greeted her at the station in Pasadena. In her memoir, Luella identifies the biggest scoop of her career when she reported the split between Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks. They were the Hollywood power couple held up as the fairy tale standard, as you no doubt already know. At a lunch date, screenwriter Frances Marion turned to Mary Pickford and told her that confession would be good for the soul. Luella must have been drooling into her soup bowl. Pickford sighed and confirmed the split. Douglas and I are separating. It's just over, she told Luella and Francis. Fairbanks was out of town on a trip to Europe where he had taken up with Lady Sylvia Ashley. Luella asked Mary if she were sure. Didn't she want to reconcile? Mary Pickford felt betrayed when Luella printed the story But according to Frances Marion's version, she told Mary that she might as well give the story to Luella before someone else got a hold of it. Luella had the examiner run the story in the last edition printed on Saturday night. When the story broke on Sunday morning, the examiner had the exclusive until Monday morning when every other newspaper had to play catch up. Luella had a keen eye, not just on getting the story, but when to publish it, to maximize control and power that came from breaking news. Luella was first to report on the split between Carol Lombard and William Powell. She followed that with an exclusive on Joan Crawford's marriage to the Fairbanks Jr. Joan had originally given the story to her friend Catherine Albert. But Luella had been planning her own feature on the couple and rang Joan to fact-check. When Joan asked her not to run the story and then evaded questions, Luella sped over to Joan's for the lowdown on their marriage. The magazine writer, Catherine Albert, had to file her story a month in advance. Luella's window in newsprint was only 48 hours, so she grabbed the scoop. Hollywood insiders began calling Luella Love's Undertaker. Divorces were big news, but so were marriages among the stars. Luella cites the second biggest scoop of her career was when she was the first to print news of 54-year-old Charlie Chaplin's marriage to 18-year-old Una O'Neill. Luella describes the nuptials as a sensational romance. Hedda Hopper would have a much different take on Chaplin's history with women, which I'll tell you about in the next episode. 
A third hot topic in Luella's column, aside from breakups and marriages, was which stars were expecting a visit from the stork. Luella carried stories about expectant mothers, the newborns, and the nursery, the wholesome depictions of family life throughout the length of her career in celebrity journalism. And she expected to receive the news first. Docky fed Luella pregnancy test results often before the expectant mothers knew themselves. He did the same with news about who had abortions and who caught the clap. Luella expected to get the exclusive from the stars, and when they crossed her, she took it as a personal attack. Many accounts circulate of a party given by Gary and Rocky Cooper, where a slighted Luella gave out to Jean Tierney for not telling her about her pregnancy first. Luella roasted Jean, and everybody else watched and said nothing. They feared the wrath of Parsons. Sometimes Luella withheld announcements when it concerned her favorites. She waited months to print the news of B.B. Daniel's pregnancy because B.B. was in the middle of two productions and the news could have harmed her career. Remember that in the studio system, women had to get permission to take time off, often without salary, to have a baby. Luella used her column as a pulpit to sermonize about what was good for the American film industry, wholesome themes without smutty overtones, and she also talked about what was good for the chief, her boss, William Randolph Hearst. Luella negotiated in private with Jack Warner to pull a picture from release. It was one of a trend in productions that represented reporters as unsavory characters who were booze hounds and more interested in circulation numbers than upholding a firm moral center. Warners had been getting ready to release Five Star Final, starring Eddie Robinson as a sleazy newspaper editor based on a story a Hearst paper had revived a cold murder case for sensational headlines. Luella intimated that Marion Davies was about to be free of her contract with MGM and could sign with Warners if Five Star Final was put on a shelf. Warner Brothers did release Five Star Final, but after Luella brought Jack and Ann Warner out to San Simeon for a weekend, Jack abandoned production on two other pictures that took a similar jaunt-aside view to the newspaper racket. Four years later, in 1935, Marion Davies packed up her 14-roomed bungalow and moved from MGM to the Warner's lot. As a result, Hearst said to give all the favoritism and all the coverage that was normally reserved for MGM to Warners. Luella once leveraged her position within the Hearst syndicate to get the story no one else could get. In 1933, George Bernard Shaw was a guest in San Simeon. Luella was determined that she would score an interview. In her memoir, she noted that she wanted to beard the beard. She admitted to Hearst that she hoped to grab an interview. Hearst advised her not to bother him, nor expect it of his guest. Instead of heeding her boss, she went over his head to Marion Davies. Marion said, leave it to me. Marion's appeal to Shaw wasn't high hat. She didn't talk about Luella's position or anything like that, nor did she mention Hearst. Marion kept it simple. 
She said, please give my girlfriend an interview. It means so much to her. With her big doe eyes and sweet face, Marion was the picture of innocence. Really, she told Shaw, you, you would be doing a wonderful thing. Shaw could say no to Luella and even Hurst the live long day, but not even he could say no to Marion Davies. Shaw had been on his way for a walk, but he stopped and tolerated the interview with Luella after she asked. He barred to Luella, what do you want to know? She stammered out a query about Ellen Terry, to which he snapped, none of your business. Luella asked what he thought of, about Sarah Bernhardt. The gruff reply was that he never liked her. She reminded me of my Aunt Georgia, whom I always hated. The 77-year-old Nobel laureate was cantankerous and bristled at her line of inquiry. Then he told her that the only way this interview could ever be published is if he approved it. Luella typed up the pages and submitted them for Shaw's approval. He took out a blue pencil and eviscerated her work. Luella noted that the compliments she paid him were the only things left standing without a mark. Otherwise, Shaw rewrote the whole thing. Luella confessed in her memoir that until now, only Marion and Bibi Daniels knew that the best story she ever wrote was written by Shaw. Luella had a red-hot exclusive interview, plus she had a one-of-a-kind manuscript from him that she could auction off for a handsome price. In the summer of 1933, Luella booked a holiday with Docky and turned over the column to her daughter, Harriet. She referred to her as Parsons Jr. and later boasted that Harriet was a better writer than she was. As a Wesleyan alumni, Harriet had the kind of polish from a liberal arts education that was largely unavailable to women of Luella's generation. It took three attempts before Luella made it into radio. On her first try, in 1928, the show fizzled out quickly. Luella explained that the show failed because her guests couldn't speak English, and she wasn't referring to the international film stars. In 1931, CBS Radio had promoted a program with Luella as a chitty-chatty gossip show. The program's sponsor was the Sunkiss California Citrus Growers Association. The fruit people paid Luella $1,000 a week, of which she had to pay one-third to Hearst, as stipulated in her contract. She attempted to negotiate a release, but Hearst's minions told her that she would have trouble if she didn't honor the agreement. The radio sponsors assumed that Luella could use her influence to get stars to waive their fee. Stars with big box office could count on thousands of dollars for one radio appearance. Mary Pickford, for example, drew $5,000 for each radio show she did. But she did Luella's show for free, just like many other stars. The only one to refuse was Gloria Swanson, who didn't see why she should work for Sunkist for free. Sunkist paid the guest stars in lemons and oranges, which were probably went right into a cocktail shaker at the end of the day. On one show, Luella welcomed Wally Beery. They traded fond memories of when they were both in SNA film studio in the harem scarum days of the early century. On another night, she had Connie Bennett on the show, who gossiped with Luella and then sang a song. 
The format boiled down to a mutual admiration society, where Luella and her guests congratulated each other on a successful, successful career. Even though Luella received nearly $1,000 a week and 1,000 letters a week, the show was dropped after four months. The third time was The Charm in 1934, when Luella returned to radio to present a show featuring interviews with the stars sponsored by Charis, a woman's undergarment company. Their specialty was a modern corset. Cinema owners objected and complained about the competition from radio, and Luella's show in particular since she used guest appearances from A-listers and who were again not paid to appear. Others assumed that Luella's show would fail precisely because the show was sponsored by a corset company, and what leading lady would want to be connected with a bulgy midsection? Instead, the show was a big success and led to a bigger opportunity. The Campbell Soup Company approached Luella to present the Hollywood Hotel program. The show was a mixed format that was cutting edge for the day. Sponsored by Campbell Soup, the show offered a blend of nightclub acts, scripted vignettes, and interviews. The program had stock characters who pretended to be patrons of an exclusive Hollywood nightclub. Luella interviewed stars, others sang, and then others acted in dramatic skits. The stock characters would ooh and ah over the stars and lend the right amount of ambiance for the radio audience. The stock players were paid $20 per show, but the stars who appeared were paid in kind with Campbell's soup. Supposedly, regulars could have request their preference, tomato or chicken. Dick Powell was the show's MC. Luella asked him for advice about the show. Dick Powell, and the temptation to just call him Dick is strong here, replied that since few people knew Luella's voice or her face, she should have an actress play her part, and then she could just sit at home and cash the checks. Luella was gutted and didn't speak to him for weeks. Dick assumed that she didn't care about the work and that she only wanted the money. For Luella, work was her life. She was deeply passionate about what she did. The Hollywood Hotel had its growing pains. Luella initially did all the talking. She was so excited with her guests, she did lots of research to find out what they were up to. And then she left the luminaries with little more to say than, "Uh uh-huh, yes and no. Luella also drew negative press and audience responses for one program in 1935 when she interrupted one of the songs to announce that she had just received word that Lowell Sherman had died. Critics found the announcement in poor taste, and it killed the mood of the show. The Screen Actors Guild took a dim view of Luella's program. She was as good as Public Enemy Number 1 from their perspective because she hosted the show on the back of unpaid labor. Stars were omnipresent in radio throughout the studio system, but they were paid for appearances. Stars such as Constance Bennett and David Niven, when they did an hour radio drama, would make $4,000 or more. Many actors padded stingy studio contracts or a lack of film roles with work in radio. As I told you about in the podcast episodes on Lynn Barry and Lucille Ball. 
Warner Brothers made a film version of The Hollywood Hotel in 1937, starring Lola and Rosemary Lane, Dick Powell, and Luella Parsons. But the stars who appeared on Luella's program were not paid except in soup. She welcomed the creme de la creme, Gable, Lombard, Crawford, Stanwyck, Gene Arthur, Dietrich, Flynn, Davis, Cary Grant, William Powell. The only big names who passed on the show were Garbo, Hepburn, and Ginger Rogers. And those stars received their share of barbed remarks from Luella because of it. Most stars feared reprisals if they didn't appear. The publicity men pointed out that Luella's show was top 10 in the ratings, and it was just good business to make an appearance. Campbell's Soup was able to produce the show as long as it did because the costs were kept so low. Luella made $2,500 a week, but Campbell saved at least $10,000 an episode on film talent. 1935 was also a notable year for Luella because Dorothy Manners became her editorial assistant. Dorothy stayed with Luella for 30 years. When Jean Harlow died, Luella and Dorothy stayed up for three nights writing the story of Jean's life. Their book was published and sold over a million copies in the first run. Also in 1935, Luella printed a small item in her column about Hedda Hopper having agreed to write a weekly column on Hollywood fashion for the Washington Post. Little did she know that her biggest rival had gotten a start. Because she wielded such power and influence through her column in The Examiner and the radio show, Luella Parsons was the subject of criticism in the media. In the 1930s, the brickbats brickbats came mostly from men who launched cheap personal attacks. They made snide comments about her weight and her lack of literary polish. Luella's competition in print was fierce from the early 1930s. By 1935, there were more than 400 writers covering the Hollywood beat for local and national publications. In the beginning, the columnists were mostly women, but as the industry and number of publications and the prestige grew, men entered the field. As you can imagine, the lads were unwilling to accept that a middle-aged woman was at the top of their profession. New Theater Magazine published an article in 1935 under the headline Hearst's Hollywood Stooge as part of a national critique of Hearst's anti-union campaign for the American newspaper industry. The tone of the article was scathing and offensive. The author wrote that this waddling drivel monger, this venomous, disagreeable woman, can be respected by the big shots, is a sad, sad commentary upon the industry. The rancid steam of misogyny is clouding up my windows as I read the nasty comment. Luella's enemies in Hollywood traded copies of the little magazine for five and ten dollars apiece. In 1938, Luella ran a story that claimed Greta Garbo was about to marry conductor Leopold Stokowski. The next day, in his column for the New York Daily Mirror, Sidney Skolsky printed a terse line of correction that Garbo was not, in fact, marrying the composer. Luella took offense and complained to Hearst that Sidney was a communist 
and that he should fire him. Since the Daily Mirror was one of Hearst's papers, he rang Sidney and asked him why he was taking a pot shot at Luella. Sidney replied, Are you sure she didn't say columnist instead of communist? Implying that Luella was less than an articulate. Hearst dropped Sidney's column. Sidney was fine, though. His column was picked up by the Hollywood Citizen News. But Sidney carried a grudge against Luella, one that turned violent. One day, Luella met her cousin, the press agent Maggie Edinger, and Alva Johnson, who wrote for The New Yorker, for Lunch and Chasen's. Sidney Skolsky entered. Maggie invited him over to their table for a chat. The group spoke for a while. Then Luella quipped that if she had known Sidney was so nice, she wouldn't have told Hearst that he was a communist. Sidney lunged at her and bit Luella's arm before he stormed out of the restaurant. Another attack came from the Saturday Evening Post in the barbed profile they published in July 1939 under the headline, The First Lady of Hollywood. The article combined a personal and professional assault on Luella. The magazine called her the most consistently inaccurate writer who ever lived. They said she was a bad writer, an alcoholic, a woman who started her day with a tumbler full of whiskey. She was guilty of gross nepotism, securing jobs for her husband, daughter, and favorites. The author made snide remarks about Harriet's $500 a week to make shorts as unearned, when the reality is, is that Harriet Parsons' work was highly respected, both as a features writer and as a studio director. Harry Cohn may have hired Harriet to make shorts for Columbia because she was Luella's daughter, but Harriet worked twice as hard to prove she deserved the job as director. The article made wisecracks about Dr. Harry Martin's place on the Boxing Commission, where a urologist seemed hardly necessary. The Saturday Evening Post byline went to Thomas Wood, but in fact, the article was written by three men, Sidney Skolsky and Nunnally Johnson added scathing commentary to the first author's story. Initially, Luella hired Hollywood attorney Jerry Geisler to file a suit for $1 million against the Saturday Evening Post, which she soon dropped in favor of a more direct method of revenge. Luella used her column. Straight away, Thomas Wood went on the persona non grata list, which left him struggle to find work. Woods was married to actress Lee Patrick, who suffered bad reviews in Luella's column for The Examiner. She did the same for Nunnally Johnson's wife, actress Doris Bowden. One item from Luella noted that Doris used to be so pretty before she married. By 1939, Luella's old friend Hedda Hopper had become a formidable rival. Hedda beat Luella to an exclusive on the story of the president's son's divorce. Even more important, though, Hedda caught the story on Carol Lombard's marriage to Clark Gable. When the most popular couple in filmdom gave their news to Luella, or sorry, to Hedda, Luella had to face facts that the power had shifted. 
What happened is that when Clark Gable finally received his divorce from his second wife, I was given the all clear to marry Carol Lombard. He had to put his foot down at Hollywood protocol. He said to hell with giving the story to Luella. Instead, they gave the exclusive to Hedda Hopper. Imagine the message that sent. Luella was out of town when she heard the news secondhand, but she couldn't hold a grudge against the newlyweds because when she returned, she discovered a beautiful new ensuite bathroom. Carol and Clark refurbished her bathroom to smooth over giving the scoop to Hedda. In response to bad press and losing out on big stories, in 1940, Luella organized a personal appearance tour with up-and-coming talent. Luella drew top billing and $5,000 a week on a national tour, stopping in cities with a Hearst outlet to maximize publicity. The two-month whistle-stop show often included five shows a day. Luella took the stage in Mink and Jules to the tune of Oh Susanna, with chorus girls singing the lyrics, Oh Luella, Won't You Mention Me. The review was a combination variety show and gossip session. Luella introduced a roster of rising stars such as Susan Hayward, Jane Wyman, Ronald Reagan, Arlene Whelan, June Pricer, and Joy Hodges. Critics were underwhelmed, but the fans turned out and packed theaters. Susan Hayward had a bit which never failed no matter where they played. She walked up to the microphone and asked, Anybody here from Brooklyn? She brought the house down every time. After returning from the successful tour, Luella was approached by United Press Syndicate. Their their deal would have resulted in a huge salary increase for Luella. Her contract with Hearst was up for renewal. At first she said yes, but the next day when it was time to sign, she changed her mind. She would stay with her chief because he believed in her when no one else did, and she was loyal. During the summer and fall of 1940, Luella dropped the ball on a story that was perhaps the most important to her dear chief. In July, Hearst asked Luella to investigate the rumors that Orson Welles was making a thinly disguised version of his life story for RKO. Previously in her column, Luella had scoffed at the enviable deal that RKO gave to Welles, someone who had no picture experience and only knew theater and radio. When they met for lunch, Orson put on a charm offensive that was impossible for Luella to resist. He was not an elitist, he said. He was just a small-town boy trying to make good. He was warm, effusive, and established a common bond by saying he hailed from the same small town just six miles away from Dixon, Illinois, where Luella hailed. Why they were practically neighbors. Luella eventually got around to the question at hand and asked Orson point blank if his picture was based on Hearst. Orson denied it. He told her the story deals with a dead man and that the widow was really the heroine of the picture. He explained that his story was about a number of people told from different points of view, but he swore up and down that it wasn't about William Randolph Hearst. Luella believed him and reported back to Hearst that the rumors were unfounded. Hearst had been planning to refuse to run RKO ads in his newspapers, but Luella told him not to bother. 
he was safe from worry and assured the chief that Cain wasn't about him. Rumors to the contrary persisted, which other writers in Hollywood believed. Then six photographs from the set circulated in a magazine, one featuring a character styled to look exactly like Marion Davies. Luella, however, continued to believe Wells and ignored the mounting evidence. In November, Luella saw Wells again in Chicago and asked him once more if it was about Hearst, and Orson Wells denied it. The Hollywood Reporter carried an item about RKO screening the picture for Look and Life magazine to accommodate their long lead time for publication. Hedda Hopper read the item and rang Orson, reminding him that he had promised her a first look. Orson tried to beg off, pleading that it was the roughest cut, there was no music yet, and many scenes were still missing. Hedda, being Hedda, insisted and took her seat among the men in the RKO screening room. As the lights came up, Hedda stood and shouted that it was an outrage against a great American. Remember that Hedda was friends with Marion Davies and was a frequent guest in San Simeon since the mid-1920s. As soon as she left RKO, Hedda rang Hearst's lawyer and told him to take immediate action. Imagine Luella's reaction when she learned that the biggest story about the chief came from an old friend and new rival, not herself. She must have been shaking in her pumps. In January 1941, Luella went to RKO for a screening to see the truth firsthand. Afterwards, actress Ruth Warwick noted that Luella was purple and her wattlers were wobbling like a turkey gobbler. Luella was incandescent with rage. She rang George Schaefer, head of RKO, and told him that if he didn't pull the picture from his schedule, not only would he have a big fat lawsuit on his hands, but that she would make sure that a series of exposés on the RKO board of directors appeared in every Hearst paper nationwide. For her next move, Luella got every studio boss on the phone and told them that if they allowed Kane to play in their cinema chains, she would run scandals on their contract players and run articles smearing them for employing foreigners over Americans. 1941 was a rough year for Luella Parsons, filled with defeat. Her reputation was tarnished for the role she played in trying to defeat Citizen Kane. When she signed a deal for another radio show, this time called Hollywood Premiere, with stars doing scenes from upcoming pictures mixed with interviews, which would again rely on free appearances from Hollywood A-listers, the Screen Actors Guild intervened. They passed a rule forbidding their members from making free radio appearances. SAG stipulated that it was bad for their union because it would ultimately lead to lower salaries from studio contracts. Luella lost out on the radio program deal. Then came the biggest blow. In August 1941, Howard Strickling, head of publicity for MGM, struck a deal with the other studio publicity men and decided to formally revoke the long-standing 48-hour exclusive that was granted to Luella. The loss of Luella's exclusive was announced on her birthday, the 6th of August, 1941. 
In September, she took the train to Dixon, Illinois, for Luella Parsons Day, but it must have seemed a small recompense during a year full of bombshells. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for episode 81 on Hedda Hopper, part four of the Luella and Hedda series. Why not leave a nice comment on iTunes or social media if you're enjoying the podcast? Thank you.